0: Today, I am speaking with Chris Ategica. Chris Ategica is an award-winning serial entrepreneur, engineer, futurist, and an optimist. He is the founder and CEO of the Unintended Consequences of Technology, Inc., or UCOT, a company that has created a unique model to support and fund early-stage startups, creating solutions to unintended and willfully ignored consequences of technology. He is the founder of Hourglass Ventures, a fund that supports visionary entrepreneurs from the African continent who come from underprivileged backgrounds, and Health Access Core, a social enterprise that works to establish sustainable healthcare systems on the African continent. Chris has been recognized as a TED Fellow, a Forbes Magazine 30 Under 30, an Ashoka Fellow, an Echoing Green Fellow, and most recently, he has been honored by the World Economic Forum as a young global leader. His work has been featured in many major media publications both locally and internationally such as bbc forbes and npr hi chris hi deb
1: first off thank you very much for the opportunity to be here and have this conversation before i get started i'd like to thank you a team for the amount of work I know the amount of work that goes into putting something like this together. I also would like to hold some space and acknowledgement that many fellow citizens on the planet are going through some tremendous pain and, and strain, some are lonely, some are sick, some have lost loved ones, some are going through some economic hardships or the many other hardships right now. You're not alone. We're in this together.
0: Thank you for being here with us. So Chris, tell me, what led you to start UCOT?
1: UCOT started around 2016, right after the 2016 election. And seeing how much the election got manipulated and a lot of misinformation that got that played a huge role in how the elections, not only in the United States, but around the world around that time, where getting manipulated by technology. And that was compounded by, I was literally at uh, a TED conference in Vancouver, in Canada, and a gentleman gave a TED talk about deep fakes. And his justification for the technology was among many things that, oh, what if your grandma could read your bedtime story, your deceased grandma could read your bedtime story to you as one use case for technology like that? And you know, as many people know right now, deep fakes has become a huge, huge problem in misinformation campaign. So the elections, information manipulation, personal experiences,
0: a combination of those led me to start the Yukon. It's so interesting because in 2016, I remember being so furious about the 2016 election results that it led me to galvanize and start a conversation called Tech Stands Up, also in the Bay Area. And it seems like this was a real moment where people suddenly were called to attention about how technology was rapidly eroding some of the basic systems on which our daily lives depended. What was the state of your thinking about the unintended consequences of technology before 2016? Do you think 2016 was really the wake-up call? Or do you think that there was something in the water in advance of 2016 that really crystallized at that moment?
1: There was something in the water, some things in the water, but it was kind of all in the background noise until something seismic happened and elections on a global scale and nationalism on a global scale, misinformation on a global scale. That's when really people started to realize the magnitude of the problem. Even right now, we're in the middle of I would say two pandemics. One is the virus and the second pandemic is misinformation around the virus. And 2020 election is up and coming. And that by itself, the misinformation is still going to be here. The same way it played a role in 2016, this time the tricks are better and faster and efficient. And we got to have to deal with that. And thanks to terrible administration, we haven't done much in trying to combat it in the first
0: place. What vision do you have for UCOT's impact? Where does UCOT step in?
1: UCOT's vision literally states that we want to create a world where technology is designed to serve or complement humanity, but not replace it so we want to create a world where technologies we create and put out into the world are designed to be of service to us they are designed to complement some of the skills that we have or make them better but not become human or not human becoming technology there's people getting chips embedded in their bodies and chips embedded in their brains. We are getting so far humans are becoming technology and at times even getting replaced by technology. So the vision is at least we keep what it means to be human and have technology be complementary and of service not replacement.
0: I want to follow up on that. What what does it mean to be human in the way that you're talking about it?
1: There are many things that make us human. The needs the wants, the desires, empathy, compassion, and the care for each other. Those are things that are very hard for a machine to duplicate. A machine follows a series of instructions to execute on a task. But as humans, there are so many nuances that we go through day to day to be able to to be and I don't think there is a way we can duplicate that in machines. We can get machines to do efficient things for us, but I don't think we can get machines to live a life for us.
0: I want to press you on this a little bit more to see where UCOT fits into this. In UCOT's mission statement, you begin with the premise that the explosion of technology and its exponential advancements are reshaping what it means to be human. In what ways... Is tech reshaping what it means to be human? What does it mean to be human in the age of tech, in your view? And why does technology have such a powerful effect on what it means to be human right now?
1: If you look at the past 20 years, you will see that technology is reshaping us from the jobs we get, the schools we apply to, the ads we see, the people we get to vote for. And that is not a small fit. It's kind of reshaping originally what we used to have this quote unquote free wheel of, of of deciding who to vote for, where to go, which school to attend. But now the ads you see are different from the ads I see because you've been isolated by technology according to the things you love to see, you like to see. And you live in your own little world, and I live in my own little bubble. And that's how we end up with the political systems we've ended up with, because people are told exactly what they need to hear, and they don't get any views that they may not agree with. And that is dangerous, because as we go into the artificial intelligence world, We're creating technologies and feeding it information, history information from the past. And we're passing on all these good, bad, and ugly traits that make us human into the machines. And, you know, anyone who has watched and witnessed history, our history is not that clean. It's something we, there are many, many things we do not want to duplicate. But there's no filters. We're just, you know, trash in, trash out. And that's how we are creating our technologies.
0: Intrinsic to the name UCOT or the unintended consequences of technology is the idea that some of the most problematic consequences of technology are just that. Unintended. So what goes wrong, right? You we're talking about, you know, historical wrongs, we're talking about how those wrongs get embedded in technology. But Unintended consequence of Technology points at something a little bit different, which is, which is that there are intrinsically good people trying to create things that will make our life better or allow us to live better, and that something goes wrong. What goes wrong?
1: Well, unintended is kind of a cop-out ah. for people who really want to avoid responsibility of their uh, contribution towards the effect so unintended consequences there are some unintended consequences but the reality is there is no such a thing as an unintended consequences it's some intended consequence that ends up with other consequences that are not desired but you intended to do it in the first place so to me from a macro picture I can say, you know, for people who want to use unintended consequences as a cop-out, I want to start off by saying unintended consequences and willfully ignored consequences. So there's a lot of consequences that people just choose to ignore because there's so much upside for them and they'd rather turn a blind eye to it. That's one. Number two is systematic bias. The system has been biased for hundreds of years, that all the biases now are getting embedded in the technologies. And when bad things happen, like, well, we didn't intend that. But the reality is, it has been intrinsically built in, knowingly or unknowingly. So I'll give you an example. During slavery, there was really, really good people who wanted to end slavery. They tried to end slavery, but because the world economy depended on slavery, they couldn't. They could, even if they wanted to do something good, but they couldn't do it because the world would just collapse. So it took about 140 years from conversation to actually abolishing slavery in America and in other parts of the world. The reason I say that and I bring that up is because that is just the beginning of of many, many, many years of bad things getting embedded into a system that we kind of transfer on to technology. Now you can take that analogy of a whole world economy lying on the backs of slaves and translate it or, or, or kind of draw a parallel with the attention economy, whereby literally the majority of the world economy and the big companies, big tech companies, their bottom line is literally sitting on the backs of the attention of humans. So it is a different form of slavery there that even if we wanted to run away from it, you can't because it's very, very intrinsically built into the system. So that is on a systematic bias perspective. The second component of, of this uh, unintended and people using it as a cop-out, there's this idea of curse-based innovation. So curse-based innovation is where someone sits on their table, they are certain classes and color, and they let's say, stop their toe walking down the street. They curse and they want to build a shoe. And the shoe they're going to build, they're going to test it on themselves and maybe their friends, maybe their family. And right there at the beginning of innovation of creating that shoe, it has biases because it's just based on this person's shoe size, shoe color, whatever the case may be. So some real world examples, a person like me, black male, walking into a bathroom and wanting to wash my hands on on those soap dispensers, and they put my hands, those soap dispensers, more often than not cannot detect the dark skin because they weren't designed for that. Another example, Band-Aids. Band-Aids were invented in 1920. Johnson & Johnson started manufacturing Band-Aids in New Jersey in 1920, and they were made in this soft pink color. It's quote-unquote the flesh color. And because it was tested on a female Caucasian woman, this Band-Aid looks like the skin of a female Caucasian woman. So to this day, a 100 years later, you go to a Walgreens or some shop, you buy a Band-Aid, and Band-Aids still look like a female Caucasian woman. And it's it's, it's that, like the idea that the, the the design, the systems, the way technology is designed, there's already uh, biases embedded in, and it's becoming, we need to actively and proactively try to dismantle that those biases.
0: One thing I really stress is that technologists or people who go into tech production really need to have an understanding of the historical developments of the components that they're incorporating into their technologies. The example that I give is the example of self-driving cars, which relies on AI technology, which in turn relies on the technology of photography. Now, photography as a technology was developed to capture white skin and was calibrated to capture white skin. Now what happens when you embed a photographic technology into an AI that then is used to have self-driving cars navigate through that AI and not hit people? Well, if they depend on a technology that is calibrated to capture white skin, they're less good at noticing and being able to detect a person of color on the road. So it turns out that self-driving cars are more likely to hit people of color on the road. Now, we think about that. We think about if the technologists working on these, working on these products had a sense of history, had perhaps people of color working on this technology, you might be able to detect and understand and avoid those kinds of catastrophic consequences of technology caused by the biases and blind spots that get embedded in in the technology. So these mistakes are avoidable.
1: Yes, they are. And just even build off of your point and why this unintended is not necessarily so unintended, there's this kind of mantra. It's kind of like a cool slogan, slang that goes on in Silicon Valley around technology production and building. You know, where you are kind of expected to just innovate and create and just fix it when it breaks. Just keep going, be agile, create things, and if it breaks, fix it. Then not now. And
0: this right, uh, move fast and break things.
1: Move fast break things, and this kind of created the the invention of this model they call the corporate social responsibility model where I will build I will extract I will destroy, but then I will call you know let's say I extract oil and just and hurt some people in that town in that neighborhood they can come and build a hospital for my my csr budget and you know feel good about myself and feel good about What I did, you know, the bad things I did. So this idea of extractive capitalism, winner takes all and I will donate later if I have to save my soul, creates this environment that the quote unquote unintended sometimes is not so
0: unintended. I think it also points to the importance of the kinds of stories and the kinds of language and the kinds of metaphors that we use to govern our thinking about technology, the metaphor, move fast and break things, or the saying move fast and break things implies a certain way of proceeding and doing things. What if our governing metaphor was not move fast and break things, but rather move slow and build things, move slow and repair things. It would be a really different mindset that you could cultivate in The production and design of these massively impactful technologies. But the
1: sad reality is that the extractive economy incentivizes people who move fast and beat everybody to the market. So your mantra would be really good for humanity, but it won't be too friendly for the market. So (laughs) they are going for the market before they go for humanity. (laughs) And that's the
0: truth. I want to follow up on that. Chris, you're a serial entrepreneur and you're a veteran of the tech industry. Has the way that you've described the tech industry always been the case? Has the industry changed since you started? And if so, what kinds of changes have you seen? When things
1: started, the real tech boom that was taking off in the early 2000s, everyone was excited about this new thing and everyone was looking for the opportunity. There were a lot of winners and a lot of Losers in those in those days, but no one knew or at least had an idea of how any type of technology can be a force for good, and it can also be abused. Same technology can be abused to cause harm to humanity. So to me, the the changes that I've seen and the, and how people used to talk about tech and how they talk about tech today is that. Before, it was pushing, you know, get rich quickly, get there, get fast, get your product in the market, be the winner, be the one who created and invented this thing. But today, people are more thinking about the the humanity component. Like, what are you doing that's good for humanity? What are you doing that's good for the planet? So the conversation is starting to shift. I always say that when tech startups started in the Bay Area in San Francisco in particular, you would find that big companies took pride in having buses have their banners and their logos on them, driving the employees around town and taking them down to Mountain View to work. And at some point, because of gentrification, like all the negative unintended consequences uh of, of the tech, of the big tech companies, At some point, people got angry and they literally like physically started to egg the buses. (laughs) They throw eggs and throw equipment at buses. And then what happened was most companies to this day have actually taken the logos of the, the buses and The buses go down and you now know who whose bus it is because of that change. People got angry and they had to, they reacted and the companies had to respond. So in the same realm of mindset, I personally think there's some form of metaphorical egging that's on the horizon that's going to happen where big companies, being big won't be as sexy as it has been. So most tech companies are pushing to be the first trillion dollar company, the you know, I was the second trillion dollar company. It's all about we are the biggest and we are the coolest on the land. But as time goes on and with issues with gentrification, issues with inequality, issues with our with climate change and our planet and the, and how these companies are playing a role, being big is not going to be cool. They're going to get egged And after getting egged, quote unquote, metaphorical egging, then they would want to change to become smaller companies as opposed to being big.
0: That's fascinating. I mean, I guess the counter argument that I've heard is that after this COVID-19 moment, many of the smaller companies will either have to service the larger companies or go out of business. And that these tech giants are going to become even more powerful and larger.
1: That is true because whoever has the money has the ability to buy up the
0: smaller companies.
1: However, you know, one thing that this COVID thing has done is really gave us a a front seat to see and look into people's lives and the inequality that exists among us and ourselves. Just look at someone's living room and where they're taking their Zoom calls, giving you the kind of lens into how people live their lives and how they spend their resources. So I can't imagine a world where there's a stadium full of, you know, a 100,000 people who are starving and they're hungry because of COVID-19. And you, a giant tech company, sit in the middle of that stadium and you throw a buffet. I don't see it happening that way because just the optics of it, they will find a way to play it in, in a way that is not too obvious at the very minimum. But I do not think getting bigger and bigger and buying up every small startup so you can grow and become bigger is going to be sexy.
0: Now UCOT is part of a growing circuit of people concerned about the ethics of technology. I have two parts to this question. First is why do you think that this concern is growing as it seems to be? And the second part of this question is are the ethical concerns that UCOT and you, as the CEO and founder of UCOT, see as the most pressing concerns changing with COVID nineteen?
1: I think COVID nineteen has given us time to pause and start to think about what's important. Before COVID, there were countries fighting against each other, going to war, shooting missiles and bullets and and rockets and bombs. And then when COVID happens, they're like, you know what? Let's take a break. Let's uh, wait for this to be over. So the fact that people have come to their senses, even on the war front, I think when it comes to technology and the concerns around technology and and the ethics around technology, we have had enough time now to really sit back and ask ourselves what's important. The quote unquote, the essential workers, people that society really pays minimum wage, they have no sick leave and no health care, are now the heroes. They're the ones out there keeping the world running and everything else has to shut down. You could have a mansion and have a giant private jet sitting in front of your house and all and fancy cars, but you're going to live in one room in the, during this lockdown. So the point I'm making is like, so the growing concern around unintended consequences, personally, I think that extractive capitalism is something that we will take a strong look as a society, as a collective, and ask ourselves, is this the direction we want to go? Because it has had so many, many adverse effects from inequality, the have and have not, Even the digital inequality, for instance, kids being out of school, and some kids have laptops at home to continue with online education, and others don't. So that's one. The second thing that we really need to take a look at is the decaying democracies. And these democracies play a huge role in responding and creating rules and policies and coalitions to be able to respond to the uh, negative unintended consequences. Nationalism. And lastly, I would say it's misinformation. So misinformation is one big of a battle that we don't have good of a solution for because there's state actors, there's individuals just sitting in their mother's basement playing a huge role in manipulating populations. So those are the things we need to take a hard look at and see if we can do something about after COVID.
0: I recently heard the term algocracy, which consists of and describes the idea of rule by algorithms. And the idea is that algocracy will overturn democracy as we know it by prodding our preferences in the directions that are encouraged by the algorithm. And of course, to go back to something you said earlier, algorithms are not neutral they carry in them the biases and the blind spots and the self-interests of the people who build them how how can we best fight back against rising algocracies and misinformation or should we can we win against these things and and what strategic advice would you give to the next generation of technologists and humanists
1: we can fight back we can fight back i think that a lot of people regardless of their beliefs Disinformation, misinformation, myths, truths, and biases are against your side by design, right? And it's imperative that we fight it all together. Otherwise, we are all on the losing side because the misinformation you're getting. Let's say you are a Democrat, and the misinformation again is targeting you directly, you to the belief system you have. And if you're a Republican, the misinformation is also targeting you. So we already are isolated. So disinformation is not just a malfunction of a system. It's just exactly how the system is designed to work. So we have to work together to know that disinformation and misinformation is designed to work against our side. And the only way we are going to be able to fight it is if we work together.
0: I want to switch gears here and talk about a couple of your other adventures. One of your most important ventures is Hourglass, a fund that supports visionary entrepreneurs from the African continent who come from underprivileged backgrounds. Now, about two weeks ago, I interviewed Aaron Samuels for this podcast, whose company Blavity built Afrotech, and we just finished talking about Afrofuturism in my ethical tech class. Talk to us about the state of African entrepreneurship and and what Hourglass aims to accomplish.
1: Yeah, thank you. Uh, So Hourglass was designed to, to solve a huge need, and the need is there's a lot of young folks who come from underprivileged background and don't have an uncle or an aunt, or even in this country, actually. We've learned this week that 30 million people are just a month's rent away from filing for unemployment, you know? So they're a lot of people around the world. So in this particular case, in Africa, youth who have great ideas, but they just don't have that friend, that family member to support the idea, get off the ground. So I created Hourglass to look at what I call the friends, family, and fools round of investment. So we'll give you your first 1,000, your first 10,000, your first 20,000, whatever you need to get the idea off the ground so that you can Build that proof of concept and so that other people can notice your idea. So, to your point, uh, the state of African entrepreneurship is very, very exciting and booming. The individuals involved are young. Youth in Africa constitutes about 19% of the global youth population. But, you know, that's a stat by UN in 2015. By 2050, more than half of the world population growth will be in Africa. Mm -hmm. So it's growing fast. It's, it's, It's very youthful. And currently, the continent is home to six out of 10 of the fastest growing economies in the world. So the size and the pace of growth is unprecedented and will bring in equally good, unique challenges as well as opportunities for the continent. Well, while there will be, even greater strain on the limited resources there's definitely going to be an immense supply of potential entrepreneurs among the youth to solve their own problems so what i found interesting is that the lack of of the formal infrastructure has created this space where you know, young folks are using the, their talent their imagination to create solutions that sometimes they beat the Western world to the market. So a good example is using smartphones as a getaway to access everyday services like finances. So here, until recently, apps like Venmo and Cash App, where people can send money to each other easily and quickly and faster, this is technology that's been going on in Africa for the past 10 years. They had like M-Pesa and mobile money because they don't have big infrastructures like banks that works for everyone, it just works for a small percentage of people who are well-to-do, they have to be creative, create products that are just going to leapfrog and support people at the bottom of the pyramid. So great opportunity. And people who see the opportunities are coming in with investments to seize on the opportunity.
0: And it's an extraordinary, I think, opportunity as well to refresh and counter the tendency that people in the global north have to cast the African continent as a space that is somehow lagging or in the past. If you actually look, I think, at the entrepreneurial and technologically developing scene, you see that African entrepreneurs and the African continent is one of the places where some of the most important innovations, I think, are likely to come. So investors, if you are thinking of Putting your money and your time somewhere right now, African entrepreneurship is a good bet for you. UCOT funds and supports early stage startups creating solutions to unintended consequences of technology. Can you tell us about a few of the projects you support?
1: Uh, Thank you. Great question. UCOT, in general, we've kind of focused on two things. The first thought is to be able to be this hub that educates the world and general public about the unintended and willfully ignored consequences of technologies. And then we realized that anyone can stand in a platform and tell you the house is on fire. But what are you really actually doing about it? And that's where the idea of UCAT Labs came about, supporting early stage entrepreneurs who are creating products and services to respond these unintended consequences. One project that I'm actually working on now and I'm very excited about is what we're calling the National Targeting Registry. And this is designed to look at fighting this misinformation pandemic. And the thought behind that is you create this online registry whereby all advertising companies, any company that sells an ad has to register that ad in the registry. So think of Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Google. They all have to push their ads through this funnel and record who sent the ad, what information, who paid for it, and who are they targeting. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that is very important is that when it comes to fighting misinformation, everything is in the dark. And no one knows who's targeting who and where. People are getting ads, they're getting misinformation, but no one is getting held accountable because we don't have a trace to trace these individuals and who are paying for these ads. So National Targeting Registry is one online tool that we're working on that I'm pretty excited about. And the goal is to really fight the misinformation pandemic.
0: What a massive undertaking do you have people who are helping or organizations that support you?
1: Yes. So we are working with a few individuals and a few institutions and and it's still early on to name names, but the whole goal is work with universities, work with tech companies, work with policymakers and turn this into law. So that way, if you send an ad targeting, you know, gay people or you send an ad targeting at-risk youth in a certain neighborhood about bonds or or you send an ad to a 28 suburban female who is single, we want to know who is sending those ads. Because if you send them information that's terrible or misinform them, we want to be able to trace back to you and hold you accountable. So that's one of the solution ideas. But through UCOT, UCOT Labs, there's been a few ideas that have kind of rolled through from an app that helps students unplug whether they're in school or in class. It literally locks you out of your phone until you're uh, ready to use it at a certain time. And some countries actually have turned this into a law where they don't allow phones before a certain age or they don't allow phones at school at all. And that is a really good thing to kind of help the youngsters uh, stay focused. Another idea has been individual security for politicians and high net worth individuals who are like a really high target when it comes to this targeting and stealing data and stealing secrets. There is another tool that has been interesting to deal with converting plastic waste. What I found fascinating is that 92 percent of all plastic is considered too contaminated to recycle isn't that crazy like so you collect the recycling you put stuff in recycling but 92 percent of that stuff that you put in recycling is considered too contaminated so it still goes in the trash anyways and this company decided to figure out how they can turn this plastic back into virgin material using bio material uh, to break it down. And I found that fascinating and interesting because, again, pollution, plastics, and straws are one of the biggest, biggest problems of our time. So there's a few ideas. Thank you.
0: I want to circle back to an earlier part of our conversation. One of the things that I think we frequently overlook is the way in which, as we talked about before, tech products are not neutral, nor are things like product design, algorithmic output, or interface unbiased. I'm very passionate about the idea that if we want to minimize the amount, range, and impact of the unintended consequences of technology, we really need to reshape the culture and the composition of those creating and practicing in technological fields. Do you agree? And if so, what needs to change? Where, where should we even start?
1: Good question. The answer is simple but very complicated. And that is who is at the design table and who is at the decision making table? I don't know if you remember seeing the image of Mike Pence and his team passing mm-hmm. some healthcare law about women and there was no woman in the room. It's literally like that. The boardrooms are filled with people who look alike, think alike, and it's very hard to change the way products are going to be produced if the culture is not changed. So diversity in the design process, diversity in the decision-making process is the key to dealing with this problem.
0: What would you tell the next generation of technologists and humanists as they go in to enter the workforce? What would you want them to know before going to work at a tech or a tech related company or field? And what should they know before they start this line of work? What kind of principles, ideas, practices, facts should they know in order to create technology that best serves human values?
1: Well, is is this idea of like really don't sell your soul. There's more to life than money. There's a lot of people who work in tech who are just existing. So this, to me, what I call live, don't just exist lifestyle, where by live. I mean, you're thinking about people, you're thinking about the planet, you're thinking about future generations. Like, what are the things that you're doing today and the role that you're playing that are going to affect people longer term? So we need to think longer beyond ourselves. And 100 years from now, if tech continues to go if the way it's going right now, we may have a world that's really, really well optimized and works for everyone. And thanks to your contribution, or we may have no world left to optimize. So it's your choice as a person going into tech and asking yourself, what world do I want to build?
0: Are there tech leaders or tech-adjacent leaders who exemplify the kind of value system that you think is best suited to avoid encounter the unintended consequences of technology? And if so, who? What kind of traits should such a leader have?
1: One person that comes to mind, I would say, is Mark Benioff, the founder of Salesforce. Mark, co-values are very important because he thinks about people, planet, and profit at the same time. So he levels it out. And he tries as much as he can not to compromise. At Salesforce, they have this model. They call the 111 model where they say 1% of Salesforce product and 1% of its equity and 1% of its employees time goes to philanthropy causes in the nonprofit sector. So that's a tech end of the company with a, a very thoughtful tech CEO who embodies some values that are thoughtful about how we live as humans and how we live the planet. His leadership style and his own personal philosophy, if you kind of get a chance to read up on him, and his management approach and style, he's a very, very approachable guy. And his style has stood the test of time 20-some years into it. He's well known for his social activism. He's very outspoken. Um, he mm-hmm. likes to promote equality. and in workplace and in the community and recently at the World Economic Forum he was saying that capitalism the way we know it is dead so we need to think about ways that are more human and just that statement itself coming from a capitalist who is a billionaire standing and sitting on a platform in a room full of his peers who are also billionaires and saying guys Capitalism is dead. Wow. That's leadership. (laughs) That's leadership. And kind of being a trailblazer in realizing that we need to go beyond the money and look more at the other stakeholders. And that is people and the planet.
0: The focus of this podcast is on the intersection of the humanities and tech. What can humanists contribute to tech culture?
1: What humanists are are individuals who emphasize the value and the urgency of human beings, individualism, and how we can collectively live together here on the planet. So to me, I feel like the interconnectedness. And regenerative mindset of the humanists is really, really needed right now to be embedded in in the tech culture.
0: Let's flip the question around. What, What can humanists learn from technologists about what it means to be human?
1: The reality is the genie has left the bottle. So tech is here and it's here to stay. We can't put it back. So the question is, how can humanists and technologists actually work together to create technologies that are sustainable and they can thrive long term that meets the needs of, of, of humanity? So I think the question still remains of regenerative systems. There is no such a thing as waste in nature. Nature knows how to create and destroy and create and destroy and everything goes back to nature we need that kind of mindset and learning from the intelligence of nature to apply to technology
0: you use the metaphor the genies out of the bottle the one that i tend to use is that we have swallowed the red pill yep (laughs) and there's no going back yeah um Right now, we're in a moment where we really have gone down that rabbit hole, swallowed that red pill, and where tech is governing more and more of our daily lives because of our inability to meet and engage as humans face-to-face. What unintended consequences do you foresee coming out of this moment?
1: Coming out of COVID-19? Yes. There is a possibility of a surveillance state right now. Most governments, not just the United States, most governments, even dictatorships, are creating laws all in the name of emergency. And because they are creating them in the name of emergency, some of those laws are going to be really hard to undo after this is gone. So a good example right now, they are thinking about contact tracing. All of us need to be tracked in order to know who has it, who doesn't, who has been tested, who hasn't. And that is going to serve its purpose. And when the COVID is gone, we'll have a state that's keeping an eye on us. Like they've already been doing that, but now it's in the open. Okay, so that's some unintended consequence. I would say also, again, I keep going back to this idea of misinformation. Coming out of this, I think misinformation is going to stick around and go... Father, because people have been talking about things like, yeah, I don't know if you read this. uh, 5G causes coronavirus. Misinformation is one of the many unintended consequences. Not going to start
0: here, but it's going to continue to be perpetrated by it. And do you have a sense that we can protect against this? And if so, how?
1: We need to first do it from an individual level. We got to do it at a community level, national, and a global level. So, from an individual level, is holding yourself accountable but at the same time being vigilant of how you consume information. Whatever you click on, you are basically telling the internet gods that you want more of that, and they will give you more of that. We need some digital diet of some sort.
0: Chris, the long line of descriptors and titles and accomplishments, far too vast for me to mention here, that accompany your name in the many biographies of you online include award-winning serial entrepreneur engineer futurist founder and there's one phrase that i wanted to press on which is the phrase and optimist what keeps you optimistic about tech even as your work points out the havoc that the unintended or perhaps intended consequences of technology have wreaked i like to say i'm an optimist
1: Because the alternative is worse. I was born in a very, very harsh circumstances personally, and I had to go through a lot of hardships to get where I'm at. And in every situation I found myself in, I would always try to find hope, even when the situation doesn't call for it. Because if you don't Find hope. What you're really doing, you are allowing the situation to take control of you, even though you don't have the power to control it. So hope and optimism to me seems like a better alternative, even like a self defense perspective to protect yourself from fighting things you cannot control. What keeps me optimistic? One word it's humanity. Humans keep me. Optimistic. If we can learn anything from this moment as a as a collective, everything has changed. I see so many people stepping up in this moment, checking in on their friends and their families, learning how to teach, long division, donating time, donating money, leaving your families to spend extra time and extra shifts at the hospital. Sometimes people are struggling to meet payroll. Preparing meals praying for each other all these things are what makes us human and looking out for each other so i see the collective action for all is really really good and this really keeps me optimistic so i have no idea what the new world looks like or the new world is going to look like because no one does but there is this saying that i latch into and and it's very common in Developing countries in, in Africa that I store my grain in my neighbor's belly. And what that really translates to is we have to rely on each other. Self-sufficiency is a Western religion. You know, it's all about me. I'll take care of me, have it all figured out. If I don't have it figured out, I need to figure it out. It's all about me. But then eventually the me breaks down and societies that have evolved to rely on their neighbor for it. when times are bad and when times are good, they thrive in instances like this when there's a lot of uncertainty. So I feel lucky that I kind of have cultivated that mindset to try to help me navigate
0: hard times. Well, you've convinced me, you've convinced me more <laughs> than just that I should be optimistic me that optimism is more than just a choice it is also an ethic it's an ethical principle it is an ethic
1: indeed hopefully i can lock arms with you and your listeners and will bring this optimism to being
0: chris thank you very much
1: thank you thank you for your time i really really appreciate you